Good morning. Hope you guys sleep well tonight. Uh, <laughs> glad you guys are here. We have a lot of ground to cover today. So uh, very, very quickly, if you weren't here last weekend, we had our baptism weekend. I can't remember the exact number from last weekend. Total though for the year, we've baptized around 150 people. We're halfway through the year and we baptized 150. That's pretty good. And um, we're celebrating, so I wanted to bring that up. Uh, the other thing, because again, we have a lot of ground to cover and I don't want to have to rush through it. We're starting a new book of the Bible and uh, we'll work through 1 Peter, we'll work through 2 Peter, and then we're going to go into Esther because we like the ladies. So yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, work through the book of Esther. And uh, it's fascinating. We choose the books of the Bible we're going to go through um, typically about a year before we go through them. So we will pray, we will talk, you know, me and the other pastors, we will talk and, and what, you know, what do we think is best for our church at this time? And, but we kind of really let the Holy Spirit lead us. And it's amazing getting into 1 Peter. It's at a very pertinent time, just like 1 Corinthians was. 1 Peter is, is also remarkably relevant. And we'll get into it a little bit in chapter one in kind of this intro. Um, but here's what we're gonna focus on today. We're gonna focus on this idea. And if you've never been to this church before, this is all we do. We just go through whole books of the Bible, and it's fascinating um, how relevant and, and how pertinent all of them are. But here's going to be our thesis this morning. It's going to be this, that we are not only capable of living holy lives, we're not only called to live holy lives, I'm sorry, but we are capable of living holy lives if we have a relationship with God. So we live in a Christian culture that makes a lot of excuses as to why we cannot live at a certain standard. And um, it's not biblical, right? Many, many times Peter is gonna say that we're supposed to live holy because we serve a holy God. And we are not only called to be holy, we are capable of being holy. And I'll define what holy is as we get through this lesson a little bit, okay? So if you have a Bible, right after the book of James, so pretty far back towards the end of your Bible, you will have 1 Peter. This was a, a, a short letter a lot shorter than 1 Corinthians was, written from Peter to uh, several different churches. I'll talk about that here in a second. But that's where that is in the Bible, after the book of James, towards the very back of your Bible. If you do not have a Bible and you're new, uh, you should have gotten a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in the notes. Everything will be on the screens around the room. If you have the Experience Community app, very, very handy. Download that, click on Sermon Notes. You got everything right there. You got all the scripture and you have all the notes laid out for you um, very conveniently on the app. So all that being said, uh, I'm gonna pray. We'll get into this, and um, I hope you find it encouraging, and I hope you find it uh, provocative, stimulating. I, I think it is. It's, it's pretty amazing um, just how straightforward and beautiful this, this book of the Bible is. It's so, it's so articulately written that they didn't believe a fisherman could have, could, could have wrote it. Seriously, a lot of theologians believe it's, it was too beautiful for a, for a man named Peter to have written, right? Because he wasn't educated, but it's very beautiful. And it was written by Peter. We know that because the first word says Peter. So anyways, <laughs> let me pray and um, we'll get into this, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who's in this room this morning. <sighs> Lord, without getting into the, to, into the minutia of it, Lord, we... We are in so much confusion, so much chaos, so much division. We, we are in such a 
unprecedented time right now, Lord, in this nation and, and, and maybe in the whole world. God, more than ever, we need you. We need the wisdom of your word and we need each other. We need, we need good church community. So Father, I pray that you bless our church this morning. Not just for our church, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses, God, and the churches in those cities. Lord, we pray for the non-believers in our community, that we can be the light, God, and that through how we live, more can come to have a relationship with you and find peace and contentment and joy regardless of the insanity of the world. Lord, we pray for the nonprofits we work with. Thank you, God, that I get to, to lead a church that's so benevolent that we can provide a million meals in one month. Praise God for that. And Lord, I just pray that as I teach today that you just keep your hand on me and give me wisdom. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll go back and um, we'll dissect it, okay? This is what Peter writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing we read is this letter was written by a guy named Peter. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was actually the leader of the 12 disciples, a very natural leader. He was a fisherman. And I think sometimes when people hear that, that Peter was a fisherman, they think of kind of like a, you know, a redneck out there on a dock, like trying to catch his lunch. And that's probably not historically accurate. When they say he was a fisherman, Peter and his brother Andrew probably owned a fishing business, which means they actually probably did pretty well, right? Um, they were working class, but, they, but they, they probably were pretty successful in their trade. So Peter followed John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with him, I think Matthew 3 is the first time we, we really get to learn about John. Peter followed John the Baptist, so he honored God, right? And he was doing the best he could. And his brother Andrew had heard about Jesus, introduced uh, Peter to Jesus. And then, of course, we know that Peter followed Jesus. His name was changed from Simon to Peter because Jesus said his personality was like a rock. Now, when you read the Bible and you read about Peter, you're like, man, Jesus sees stuff that we don't see. Because uh, Peter did some dumb things, very dumb things, very impulsive things. Like when someone tried to arrest Jesus and Peter cuts the guy's ear off with the sword and Jesus is like, come on, Peter, you know, we don't do these things. And he stuck the ear back on the soldier and said, this is in the Bible. And he said, Peter, if you live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. And so he was very impulsive. He could be a little selfish, but it's interesting. Jesus saw something in him that maybe no one else saw. He was a rock. He became the leader of the first century church, the leader of the disciples. He traveled and preached the gospel in many, many areas. And he was eventually crucified, um, oddly enough, upside down by Caesar Nero because Peter didn't, he didn't think he was fit to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was crucified. So he was actually crucified upside down. The audience of this particular letter that Peter wrote was not one church, but a, but a series of churches all throughout what would be modern-day Turkey. In the Bible, you would hear it be called Asia Minor, but it was modern-day Turkey. There was a bunch of churches in this area. They were suffering heavy, heavy persecution. 
When it says that they were exiles, they were literally exiles. They had been kicked out of their homeland of Rome and were in modern day Turkey. Um, most of these Christians he was writing to were not Jews. They were about 30 years removed from Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. They did not have a lineage of following God. They were new believers and they were Greeks and Romans. So what Paul wanted them to do was he wanted to encourage them to stand firm in their faith because suffering in this life as a Christian is to be expected. We are all exiles to some extent. We'll talk about this several times. The Bible says we live as strangers. We are exiles, we are migrants, we are traveling through. We're always going to be outsiders in this world. But Peter says, regardless of how difficult that may be, the reward that we receive if we follow Christ will, will completely outshine any of the suffering that we might've dealt with in this world. That's what he is encouraging them to hold on to. So like I said, many of the people that are receiving this letter were literal exiles. They were being heavily persecuted by Nero. This escalated, if you don't know anything about Roman history, it's absolutely fascinating. Caesar Nero was probably, besides maybe Caligula, the craziest person to ever lead Rome. He was absolutely insane. Um, he killed himself in front, of the, in front of the Roman Senate by slitting his own throat. He set Rome on fire, downtown Rome on fire. And they think the reason why he did that is he wanted to burn up the neighborhoods around the palace so he could extend his palace. So I guess just light your neighbor's house on fire, right? That's what he did. And then he blamed this fire that got out of control in Rome. He blamed it on the Christians. The Christians did this. And so heavy persecution started in about 64 AD with the Christians in Rome. In fact, uh, interesting fact, one of the things that Nero would do is in his garden, he would take live Christians, dip them in wax, tie them to stakes, light them on fire. They called them Roman candlesticks. That's where we get the term Roman candles is because of the, the, the gardens of Nero where, where Christians would be lit on fire as they were burning alive. So here's the thing about persecution. It took about 30 years for persecution to kick in in Rome because persecution starts as a slow burn. And we're seeing this right here in our homeland. It starts off by social ostracizing. I think you've seen that a little bit. Grows into false accusations and name calling. And then eventually it turns to physical violence. This is the way persecution operates, okay? And that's what we're starting to see a little bit here. So Peter also tells these exiled Christians, he says, you are chosen by the foreknowledge of God. God has chosen you through his foreknowledge. Now this brings up an argument that a lot of Christians get baited into and it's a really stupid argument and it's a waste of time. We argue about things like, well, are we predestined or do we have free will? A lot of Christians who spend way too much time arguing with other Christians versus telling non-believers about Jesus will say things like, I'm an Arminianist. I'm a Calvinist, I'm smarter than you. No, 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 I'm smarter than you. And the problem with this whole argument, besides the fact that it's a waste of time, is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches you that you are predestined. The Bible also teaches you that you have free will. Well, Corey, that doesn't make sense to me because God's a bigger deal than you are. And the Bible teaches both, and we just have to accept that we're not gonna know everything about God on this side of life. The point though is this, did God choose you? Absolutely. Do you have to choose God? Absolutely. It teaches both of these in the Bible. 
sorry. So it also says that we are sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. When we choose God and we accept this, we are sanctified. That means even in the middle of pain, even in the middle of stress, even in the middle of, of persecution, the Holy Spirit of God strengthens us and shapes us and molds us if we have a relationship with God. So sanctification sounds like a big scary word. It's, it's really not. All sanctification is is the process by which we become holy. And holy means that we live the way God wants us to live. So when we're saved by God's grace, we start to live the way that God wants us to live. And when we live the way God wants us to live, here we go, God uses us to be the light to people that don't know him. He uses us to do amazing things in the community and with our neighbor and with our family and in our marriage or whatever the case may be. And this is a lifelong journey. This does not end. Sanctification does not end until we either die or Jesus splits the Eastern sky and comes back for us. Until then, we should be constantly growing in, 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 our, in our relationship with him. So listen, it's not just about knowing Jesus. It is striving to become more like him. That's what sanctification is, to be made more into his image. And part of that, here's where we start to struggle, is we're called to be obedient. So God chooses us, right? And in our obedience, we are choosing him back. We follow the commands of the word of God. So whenever I say things like that, some people get triggered by that and they say, oh my gosh, he is a works-based pastor. That guy up there thinks that I have to work my way to heaven. That is absolutely incorrect. There is nothing you and I can do to earn salvation. There is no amount of good. This is why karma is bullcrap, right? There is no amount of good that we can do to overcome the evil that we have done. We are only saved by God's grace. But here's the thing. Because we've been saved by the work of the cross and God's grace, we show our salvation by obeying Jesus's commands. Jesus even says this. You've been saved to go out and do good works to glorify your Father in heaven. And here's the other side of it. If we have been, as Peter says, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, which means we understand that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for our sin, we should want to live in a manner that honors that sacrifice. Amen, right? We should want to live in a way that honors the cross and honors the one that died on it. Okay, that was only two verses, guys. I promise it's not gonna take that long, though. Bear with me, I got two big chunks to read. Blessed be God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, 
which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Now, let me explain to you what's going on there. The first thing that that, that Peter is trying to make the point of is this, is that we are only saved by the mercy and grace of God. And he said, our salvation is a living hope. It is only possible because God loves us and, and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So right there, Peter says, the only way you can be saved, the only way you can be changed, the only way you can be delivered, the only way you can have a a biblically successful life, right? Is through the grace and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, here's the thing. Knowing that you and I are incapable of saving ourselves because we live in a world right now, right? That says, save yourself. They don't say it exactly like that, but it's all works-based. And there is bondage in that because we can never be good enough. But if we know that we are incapable of saving ourselves, we are liberated in that. It keeps us humble. It keeps us dependent on God. It liberates us from a life of trying to earn love, not just the love of God, the love of others. I don't have to earn your love. I don't have to earn the love of God. The love of God is freely given to me and I should find confidence in that and peace in that and security in that. So once we know who we are in our creator and how much Jesus loves us, right? That it's only by God's grace. That's actually what sets us free. That's what liberates us to live a holy life. And our living hope that that sustains us now, right? also lets us know that there is a future for us. We have a hope of a better future, that there is an eternity in existence that will be perfect. And Peter says our future, our eternity, I love this. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. The exact opposite things of everything in this world. Everything in this world will die. You will all die, right? Your houses will deteriorate. Your cars will break down. Businesses we work for one day will cease to exist. Everything is perishable in this life, right? Not only that, everything seems to be defiled over time. We make mistakes. Companies become corrupt. Governments become corrupt. Ideas break down. They become defiled because we're humans. And then it is, it is fading because it's perishable, because it can be defiled, it fades, it goes away. And Peter said, this is, this is not how your eternity looks. 
There is no death in your eternity. There is no evil in your eternity. There is no fading. It will be glorious forever. So what we need to remember is that no matter how difficult this life may be, it is not forever. It is not forever. The Bible goes on and on to say so many times you are strangers, temporary residents, migrants, exiles, This is not your forever home. Now listen to me, I love you guys. There are too many Christians that act like this is your forever home. And it is not. And if this is our forever home, I'm disappointed because I'm sick of death. I'm sick of pain. I'm sick of evil. I'm sick of racism. I'm sick of misogyny. I'm sick of all the things that make this life ugly. Tired of that. That's why we have to understand that there is a, a, a better existence beyond this one. But listen, we're not there yet. And until we get there, the Bible says that God's power guards us. This does not mean that you will not get physically hurt. It does not mean that. If it meant that, Jesus and the the disciples, they kind of got screwed, didn't they? Jesus suffered. 10 of the, the 11, I'm not counting Judas, right? He betrayed Jesus and took his own life. But 10 of the 11 remaining disciples died horrible deaths. The only one that didn't die an unnatural, horrible death was John. Oddly enough, the only one who was there present when Jesus was crucified. But he was also boiled alive and exiled to an island, Patmos. So these men suffered extensively. So when it says that God guards us, it's not talking about our body. You're not promised longevity physically. What God guards is your heart, your mind, and your soul. It's like when they, let, they, they line up dozens of Christians on the beaches of Lebanon, right, overseas, and they start to saw off the heads of these Christians. I don't advise you look at images or pictures or video of that, but these men didn't cry, they didn't beg, they didn't renounce their faith. They died with dignity because they know you can take my body, but you cannot take my heart. You can take my body, you cannot take my beliefs. You cannot take my soul, Right? The Bible goes on to say that people that die like this are actually rewarded in a special way in heaven. So even though we may suffer, if we walk in a relationship with Jesus, we can have joy even in the middle of hard times. We can have hope even in the middle of hard times because we know that this world is fleeting. The things of this world are fleeting and that they don't hold eternal value. That we understand that this life is a blip on the map compared to our eternity with Christ. Now, let me, let me take it even up a notch. Peter does this. He says, suffering is actually a good thing in the life of a Christian. We often pray that God saves us from suffering, right? And so suffering and trials actually can be a good thing in our life. Peter uses the analogy of gold that is refined in a fire. That, that, that people would take, metallurgists would take raw gold, put it into a vat, because I know you guys love metallurgy. You guys read about this and study about it in your spare time. They take raw gold, they put it in these vats and turn it up to an extremely high heat. The impurities rise to the surface because when extreme heat is put on us, we tend to see our true character. Those impurities are removed and then they take the gold out. And in Peter's day, look at this, not only does the fire refine it, the gold, they would polish out the gold to where it would have a mirror-like shine. So here's what God wants to do with us. 
Not only does he want to remove the impurities, he wants to be able to look at us and see a reflection of himself. That's what God wants out of us. So when we go through suffering, it refines us. It creates empathy. It gives us wisdom. It gives us strength. It gives us appreciation. And suffering identifies us with Jesus because he suffered for us. If we get to suffer for him, the Bible says that should be counted as an honor, right? So suffering can actually be good for us. And then Peter, he, he, he writes to these people, right? And these are people who had never physically met Jesus. They were again about 30 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter says, though you have not seen him, physically seen him, you love Jesus. This was a huge compliment to, to the faith of the first century Christians. These are people who were in danger of being slaughtered. And though they had never laid eyes on Jesus, they believed in Jesus. So the key to faith and the, the, the key to contentment and joy is that we must have an open mind. We must be willing to find the truth. Listen, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, if you came here this morning because you have a desire to know the truth, if you came in here this morning and you really genuinely want to know where you came from, what it's all about, what the meaning of all this is. If you are genuinely looking, I am 100% convinced that you will find Jesus. Because the Bible says that those who seek, find. The trick is, even if you believe in Jesus in here, is Christians, are we so willing to, to, to hear the truth and so willing to grow in, in a relationship with God that if we start reading this book, which I recommend Christians do, that if we come across things that contradict the way we live, are we willing to change? Do we really have a desire to know the truth? A lot of us say we have a desire to know the truth until we find out that the truth contradicts things that I wanna do. And then we don't care nearly as much about the truth. But if we approach the, the, the spirituality with a pursuit of the truth, you will find Jesus. The last thing in this part that I read that Peter hits on, and it's kind of interesting, he starts talking about the Old Testament prophets. And he says, the prophets, what he's, I'm paraphrasing, but Peter says the prophets of the Old Testament, like Moses and Malachi and Jeremiah and Isaiah, Peter writes to the New Testament Christians, he says, the prophets of old, they didn't even have the kind of understanding of God that you do. Because we have access to the full word of God, let that sink in. Now, granted, those, those prophets are dead, so they're in heaven right now. They have a very good understanding of God right now, right? But in their lifetime, what you, the knowledge you have been given about God, you in this room, you have had more access to, to information about God than Moses did, than, than, than Elijah did, than Isaiah did, than Jeremiah did. Because we have the full word of God presented to us, that I think 5% of Christians actually read, that we have the full word of God and because we have the Holy Spirit. And Peter goes so far to go, not only do you have more, I don't wanna say access, but more knowledge of God than the prophets had, Peter ends this section by saying, even the angels are kind of freaked out by how much God loves us 
and by how much access God has given us to him and by how much information that God has given us. It says even the angels like are trying to like catch a glimpse of this relationship between you and I and Jesus Christ, right? The relationship we have to our creator. Let me pause there for a second. Isn't it fascinating how easily we take that for granted? I do it too, guys. We're all guilty of it. We take it for granted. And Peter is saying, you have access to some pretty cool stuff, right? You have been really privileged, okay? Last part, again, big section here. This is where some really good stuff is. All of it's been good, but this is really, really good. He says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, wait a second, God judges us based on work? Anyways, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. He's quoting Isaiah right here. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like a, a flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Okay, now there's some very serious and very practical stuff for us in this room in this section. The first thing is this. The first half of this chapter, Peter is saying, we have been saved by God's grace and we should be really, really appreciative of that. You didn't earn it. There's nothing you can do to buy it. You have been saved by the grace of God. So what he does is he writes the words, therefore. That's a big, big deal right there. Because you understand that you have been saved by God's grace, now here's how we respond to that. What that means is this. If we have been saved, how we live post-salvation should look dramatically different than what our life looked like pre-salvation. Because we understand that we're saved, therefore, be ready for action, right? Hard to do that if we don't know the word of God. Be sober-minded. It's hard to do that when we're intoxicated. And put your hope completely on the grace of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. 
Ephesians 1.13 says that when we are saved, we are given the promise of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that enables us to live in a way that honors God. I talked about this last week and I'm gonna harp on this because I hate it. Whenever I hear Christians say, we're all just dirty, rotten sinners, that is not biblically supported. If you have given your life to Jesus, Romans chapter six, you are a new creation. First Peter chapter one, you are in a new way of living that we are to now live differently. If we have been saved by God's grace, we do not live the way we used to. And we demonstrate that, demonstrate that through an obedience in God. He says to be obedient children, look, Corey, what do you mean we're not still dirty sinners? Because we don't conform to the desires of our former ignorance. If I've been saved by the grace of God and I come to church and hear that it's wrong for me to sleep with my girlfriend, yet I continue to do that, I am living conformed to my former ignorance and that is not salvation. This is not living in a way that honors God. I love you and if that hurts your feelings, I'm so sorry. I would rather hurt your feelings than you go to hell. So I want to tell you the truth. Now listen, put your seatbelts on for a second. Make sure your brains don't come out of your ears. This is very simple logic. If I say that I am a Christian, that means that I follow Jesus. What that means is if Jesus is walking in a certain direction, I follow behind him in the steps that he takes and the direction he goes, I go. That's what being a follower by definition means. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm walking in a completely different direction, doing things that he told me not to do, stepping in ways he has told me not to step, I am not a Christian by definition. So listen, do us a favor, those of us that are trying to follow Christ, if you're not, take the bumper sticker off the car, stop wearing our shirts, stop using the title, because listen, because your hypocrisy is making it hard for the rest of us. Live the way the Bible tells you to live. And if we have been made aware of the truth of God's word, yet continue to do what is opposed to that, we are not Christians. I do not care what you say. I do not care what you say. You are not by definition a follower because we are called to be holy in our conduct. This doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that when we make a mistake, we feel remorse about it and try not to do it anymore not make excuses. Well, no, there's never an excuse to sin, brothers and sisters, never. Here's the thing though, I was really proud of this blue part. That's why, that's why it's blue. <laughs> Obedience does not produce a relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. You coming to church once a week does not make you a follower of Jesus. You giving to the church every once in a while does not make you a follower of Jesus. You even serving doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Having a relationship with Jesus makes you a follower of Jesus. Obedience does not produce belief, but true belief will always produce obedience. A true relationship with Jesus will always produce obedience. So conforming to the likeness of Jesus starts here, but it will come out in how we live. So what is salvation? Because everyone thinks they're saved, right? Salvation is not only accepting Jesus, it is loving Jesus and wanting to grow closer to Jesus. It is a change that we start to see now and comes to a completion when Jesus comes back. It's not just accepting Jesus. 
It's loving him and building a relationship with him. That is salvation. So not only are we to be obedient and to live in, in a way that is holy, we are also to live in reverence. This is where we really struggle in the United States. But here's the thing. God takes character development very, very seriously. And our post-salvation lives, they should be like Jesus and how we speak and what we do. Our post-salvation lives should also be a respect, 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 and reverence, not only for God, right? Here we go. We're also to respect and revere and honor the people around us, whether they agree with us or not. So here's the thing. We can fake it for a while, but eventually true character always bubbles up to the surface. And here's the thing. As people saved by the grace of God, we're not only to show honor and love and respect to God, you are called to do that with the people around you too, even non-believers. We'll get to that in chapter three. So here's what I hear a lot in Christianity. Well, Corey, I'm not gonna be a doormat. I'm not gonna let people treat me like that and talk to me like that and say things about, I'm gonna fight. And I said, okay, go to the book of Matthew and read about when Jesus Christ was in front of the Sanhedrin. He was unlawfully arrested. They lied about him right in front of him. They slandered him, they hit him, they spit on him, and then go into the book of Matthew and see what Jesus' response was. You know what it says? And he did not open his mouth. <laughs> are we arrogant Americans or are we Christians? We have a culture problem in this country. And one of them is we have an extreme level of bravado no one's gonna cut me off in traffic. No one's gonna say that about me. No one's gonna push me around. And Jesus says, man, when they slapped my left cheek, I just offered him my right. And we think that's crazy because sometimes our culture trumps our Christianity in the United States, does it not? Even within Christians. And some of you are having a hard time with me saying that right now. There should also be a genuine reverence and, and, and respect of God, a fear of God, Another thing that Christians say that is not biblically accurate is we go, well, whenever the Bible says we're to fear the Lord, that just means we respect him. That's about half of it. The other half of it is, listen, if you've ever seen a documentary about the enormity of the planet, uh, planet Jupiter, it's huge, right? If you've ever watched any documentaries or read about how far Pluto is from Earth, you have to travel 37,000 miles per hour for 10 years to get to Pluto, that's a big amount of space, right? That, that's, that's, that's worse than driving through Atlanta. I mean, that's a big <laughs> chasm of space right there, right? Here's the thing. When you understand that, that God who spoke Jupiter into existence, who spoke this solar system and this galaxy into existence, when you understand that you serve a God that can not only speak it all into, into existence, according to Revelation, he's gonna speak it out of existence and instantly create a new one, when you understand how powerful God is, yeah, I respect him, but I also know that if I'm on his bad side, that can be really bad for me. He's God. So that's why, that's why in Proverbs, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why he says that. God is a perfect father that loves you very much, but God also does not tolerate evil. And he will deal with evil in a very strict and swift way, okay? So you hold all of this up to our culture. 
Hold this up to our culture. Obedience, reverence, respect, love, sacrifice, suffering. Hold this up to our culture. And it is exactly the opposite. So what we learn is holiness, biblical holiness is the opposite of conformity. It is the opposite of conforming to the pattern of this world. Because we live in a culture that the word submission is a bad word, that's weak. We value self and rebellion over obedience. We are irreverent, not just to God. We live in a culture that talks about love and I'll love you until you say something that I politically agree with and then I will hate you and I will stomp on you, literally and metaphorically, right? We have a very conditional love in our culture. And what Peter tells us to do right through the Holy Spirit is this is not the way we're supposed to live. We have been bought back from this bankrupt society. We have been bought back from this bankrupt culture that consistently fails. What that means, and I'm gonna ruin chapter three for you, I'm sorry, is that when the world treats us evil, Peter says we do not return evil for evil. That, uh, I gotta be so careful with this. I'm gonna start off by being very, very clear. I'm against abortion. I'll address it, right? Everyone's been hearing about it. I'm against it. I do not believe it's right. Do you know what I also don't think is right? Calling people who don't know Christ murderers, killers, baby killers, awful names. Hold on before anyone does anything. You know something that changed my whole perspective on humanity? I cannot expect one to act like Christ who has never met and engaged in a relationship with Christ. Hold on. So maybe, 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 just, just bear with me for a second before everyone thinks I'm an awful, you know, liberal communist or whatever people say, right? Hold on. If we would focus on loving people and letting God touch the hearts of people, if we would work on building relationships, if we would not return evil for evil, the problem is, oh God, the problem is not law. The problem is the human heart. That is the problem. Listen, and you can search this book all day long. Jesus, Peter, Paul, James, Jude, the other writers of the New Testament. Their goal was to not change government. Their goal was to change the hearts of man. Hold on. Some of you hate what I'm saying right now, but biblically prove me wrong. Biblically prove me wrong. Our goal is to be the light and to love. If we're pro-life, let's be pro-every life, even those that oppose us, even those that, that, that say evil things, even those that do evil things. We must love because it is only through that love, through Jesus, through the truth, that things will change. We are not meant to address things the way the world addresses things, with hate and vitriol and slander and bad things, even if they are doing evil. I hope, I hope everyone heard me on that because people take things I say way out of context. I didn't know this was a pro-abortion church. It is not, it is not, right? But I'm a pro-person church, very pro-person church, all people, okay? So we have been redeemed by the ways, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ to not respond to things the way the world responds to things because they fail, they don't lead anywhere. And so we as Christians, Everything I just said, someone's going to take that way out of context. Corey doesn't believe in law. He doesn't, no, that's not it. True Christians will live out their faith. They will live out biblical faith. This is why James, the, the literal brother of Jesus said, you can tell me you're a Christian all day long. James says, I will show you that I'm a Christian by how I live, by how I work, 
This means that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But because his work has saved me, I'm saved to get to work. Then now I am supposed to advance the kingdom of God. I'm to demonstrate my faith by biblical good deeds. That means that Christianity should be unique. It should look different from the world. It should be obvious. Our faith should be very clear. But unfortunately, Way too many Christians have conformed to a very bastardized, twisted view of this word faith that really doesn't much look, look much different than the world around us. So we can do this. We can live obedient. We can live in love. We can live holy lives. We can do this, but you can't do it without Jesus. And what I mean by that is you have to have a, a strong, consistent relationship with God. We're invited to be born again. We're invited to be saved. We're invited to be changed. We're invited to be empowered by the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the grave. We are invited to, to possess the same spirit that rose Christ from the grave so we can live the way God wants us to live. We can be the kind of Christians that disagree with evil, right? We know that things are wrong, but we still love people. We can hold on to our biblical integrity and not compromise what this book says, and we can still treat people with respect and love and care. We can still have this place be an inviting atmosphere to where anyone who comes in, regardless of the mistakes they made, can come in and hear the truth. Now, whether they accept it or not is not my problem. My problem is to create an environment where they can at least hear what is right. And that is, listen, that is all of our goals in this room. But I'm gonna tell you more than, more than ever in my lifetime, I know that I have to pray every single day day. You need to pray every single day. Man, this last week, just the news and everything that's going on. I found myself in my garage. I go out and just hang out in my garage sometimes. And I just, God, and I just talk to God. You need to talk to God. Well, Corey, that's uncomfortable. Get over yourself. Open your mouth and speak to God. Making 30 second videos of you dancing and putting on TikTok is weird, right? But we all do that. Not all of us, I don't. But anyways, talk to God. We need to pray. We need to be obedient to the word of God. That book has a lot of wisdom in it. The words in that book can save your marriage, can save your relationship with your children. Man, it can save your finances. If we all followed biblical teaching on, on money, we'd all live differently. It, it can help you in every corner of your life. Read it and do what it tells you to do. And listen, you need to be at church. I don't care what anyone says. Well, I don't have to be at church to be a Christian. Also, find that in the Bible for me. Find it anywhere in the history of the people of God that they didn't get together at least once a week and worship and read the word of God together. Find it in that book and tell me that it's okay not to be in community. Find it. It's not there. Listen. I will show you in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says you need to be at church more and more and more as the coming of Christ gets closer. You need good people around you. And if we pray, read the Bible, and if we have good community, you can love God, you can love people, and you can honor and respect both. It is possible. Listen, you and I are strangers in this life. If you're a Christian in here, the Bible says you are living as an exile 
is a stranger. In chapter two, Peter says that we are a peculiar people. This does not mean that we are isolated from the world. You Listen, we're talking like real honest adults in here. I find myself, and I'm a people person, I like people, but I find myself wanting to isolate. I find myself not wanting to go to coffee shops anymore. I find myself not wanting to be in public. I, I find myself wanting to be alone more. And I have to say, God, that's not the way I'm supposed to live. I know we all need our alone time, but we are to be around people. Listen, you're to be around people that are vastly different from you. You're to be around people that don't believe the same things you believe in. Of course, we use wisdom in that. But listen, if the people of God isolate themselves from the world, who will share the gospel? How will people come to salvation? If we're calling people who commit sins awful, vile names, will we ever have the opportunity to speak the truth to them? Do you hear what I'm saying? We are not to isolate, but we must be insulated by the Holy Spirit. That means we need to pray for God to fill us and that we can live, listen, that we can live in such a way to where a broken, chaotic world sees us and they go, Corey, why is your marriage so good? Let me tell you why my marriage is so good. And that opens up the door for Christ to work. Hey, what, why is your relationship with your children so good? Let me tell you why my, why my relationship. Listen, in the middle of all this economic scare and in the middle of all this crazy chaos in the United States, how can you be so peaceful and content? Let me tell you why I can be peaceful and content. Because how we live matters. It matters. We must also remember that the, the struggles and the things we are going through, brothers, sisters, people in this room, it is not forever. It's gonna pass. It's gonna pass. But listen, how we handle the things in our life right now determine what our eternity looks like. I hope that, I don't mean that to be scary, but we have one shot. Listen, you have one shot at this life. And the Bible says you're not promised tomorrow. Jesus said that. You're not promised longevity. We're not all promised to live to be 78 or 88 or 98. We're not promised that. We have one shot at this life. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with this life? What are you investing in? What are you pouring into? What is important to you? We have one shot. And what we do with this one shot determines what our eternity looks like. But we are living as strangers. And so our faith has to be visible. Listen, though we are to communicate the gospel, another thing that I hate when Christians say it is they go, well, you know, we just live like a Christian and that'll win people over. It won't. The Bible even says you, the only way that people are saved is if they hear the truth. So eventually we have to speak it. But the bridge that gets us to the place to where we can speak the truth in someone's life is how we live. But I'm gonna tell you what, if you go to work and you're lazy and you're rude and you're always talking down about people or and you're always saying that these people are this and you're gossiping and slandering and you're not very kind, no one's gonna wanna hear about your faith. But if we love people, if we treat people with respect, even if we disagree with them, there is this narrative in our culture that if people disagree, they have to hate each other. And that is not the way it should be with us. I love you despite how you feel about me. 
That's how it should be. And it is only when we build that bridge that you can talk to people about the truth, but you have to love them first. You have to respect them first. You have to be kind to them first. And it is not enough to simply say that we believe. We must live like we believe. We must live out our faith. It's like those people that put like a save the whale bumper sticker on your car and I'm an activist. You have to act to be an activist. Just putting a bumper sticker in your car means nothing. If you've never done anything for the whales, if you've never given any money or gone and volunteered any time, your bumper sticker does absolutely nothing. That's not activism. It's just taking up real estate on your bumper, right? That's all it's doing. But we do that as Christians, do we not? I got the sticker, I got the shirt, I got a tattoo that has a scripture on it, I got some stuff. But you live like hell. You don't live in freedom, you live in sin. You're a bad example of the people around you. Just saying that we are something does not make us that. We have to live as that as well. And let me tell you this, simply going through religious motion does not make you a follower of Jesus. Why? Because God sees the true nature of our heart. We can check off all the boxes, but if we do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, we are not followers of Jesus because biblical action should be a result of a changed heart. It starts here and works its way out, not here and works its way in. It starts here. So listen, if we are to endure this life, and, and listen, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer today. It's probably too late for that, right? But um, <laughs> it's not gonna get easier for you to be a Christian. If, if you just can't make it now, you're not gonna be able to make it five years from now. You're not gonna be able to make it 10 years from now, 20 years. I don't believe the tide is going to turn. I believe we've, we've crossed that tipping point. It is only going to be more difficult for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So some of us need to make a decision today that if we're going to endure the confusion of the world, we are a very confused people. If we're going to endure the materialism of our culture, right? The chaos of our culture, the suffering of our culture, you need a relationship with Jesus every single day. Every single day. That means that we have to have a desire. We have to want to know the truth. We have to be humble enough to when we discover the truth, and if the truth contradicts what I do, that I have to change. The truth doesn't change for Corey. Corey has to change for the truth. That we are open-minded, right? Willing, humble. And if we will pray, if we'll have a relationship with God, if we will read the word of God, if we will have good people around us, you can be saved by God's grace and you can be given the power to live in a way that honors God and not only that, honors and blesses the people around you. But we have to be con consistently connected to Jesus, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you are not a believer, maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're new to the faith but you got questions, maybe you're on the fence, up here on my right, your left, uh, Pastor Jonathan is up here. 
If you have any questions for Jonathan, if you have any questions about faith or church, anything, please, please come up and talk to him. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, there are men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray with you, okay? Anything. If you're struggling, if you need help, please let someone pray with you. The last thing is this. We have communion all the way around this room. And if you're sitting in the center of the room, we started putting some communion on these poles if you don't wanna have to go all the way back to the, uh, the stations where they are. The communion in this room, the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented by the bread and the wine. Listen, this is so important. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. When we take communion, it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, let's, let's talk logic and reason. If God was willing to give his only son to die on a cross for the sins of mankind, if he would do all that for you, do we honestly think that God will not give us the ability to make it? Do we honestly think that God is going to leave us hanging? Do we honestly think that God doesn't love us? If I gave my only child for you, that means that I really love you, that I want you to succeed and make it. So when we take communion, we are reminded that God is for us. He loves us. And everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I thank you for everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, that you give us strength. I pray that you give us endurance. Father, I pray that you give us a love for people, even people that we do not agree with. I pray that you give us patience. I pray, God, that you give us a dependency on you, Lord, knowing that we can't save ourselves, that we have to depend on you. Lord, bless everyone, God, in this room. Bless everyone watching on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Keep us strong, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you very much. You're welcome to help yourself.